It's time to think about the Bible like you never have before. This is Christian Questions. After the podcast, check out everything ChristianQuestions.com has to offer. Also see our weekly video series releases at ChristianQuestions.com slash YouTube. Here's your hosts, Rick and Jonathan. Quoting from a devotional called Women in the Bible, Teddy Roosevelt once said that nine-tenths of wisdom consists in being wise in time. After the dust settles, the storm clears, and the action stops, it's often too late for wisdom to work its marvels. I'm Rick, and this is not your typical Christian commentary, as we look at Bible-related topics from a different perspective. Joining me, as always, is Jonathan, my co-host, for more than two decades. This podcast centers on godly principles, family values, and honest dialogue in a politically free zone. Jonathan, what is our topic for today's episode? What is my battle plan to defend against Satan's attacks? Our theme text, 2 Samuel 20, verse 15. And they came and besieged him in Abel Beth Maka, and they built up an assault ramp against the city, and it stood against the outer rampart. And all the people who were with Joab were wreaking destruction in order to topple the wall. Also with us today is Julie. Hi, and today we have lessons from an unnamed woman of the Bible, and I'm excited to learn more. Dun, dun, dun. All right, so what's my battle plan to defend against Satan's attacks? It's coming up in today's podcast. The Bible is profoundly truthful when recounting ancient Jewish history. Sieges of cities were brutal, a brutal part of that history. So what can we possibly learn from such brutal warfare? Find out in about 15 minutes. In the midst of history's brutality, amazing and peace-producing people are also present. We'll reveal how one such person disarmed a monstrous siege with a few words in about 30 minutes. And finally, can Satan lay siege to our own minds? Can he make us doubt our defenses and fear his attacks? Absolutely he can. We'll talk about remedies for this in about 45 minutes, but first, let's start with the beginning. As Christians, we are constantly faced with the challenge of doing the right thing in a sinful world. We are bombarded with input and suggestions that can easily cloud the simplicity of what the right thing is. Once we get the right thing in focus, the next challenge is to do that right thing the right way. Oftentimes, the right way is not our natural or preferred approach. The problem our handling of what is right in God's eyes is always subject to Satan's attacks. These attacks can come from external forces, but most often, his most destructive attacks come from our own fallen thinking and desires. Essentially, Satan can effectively lay siege to our spiritual lives by opening doors to try and accomplish spiritually right things in a humanly sinful way. We need a battle plan for our defense. And that battle plan is going to start with today, our examining an Old Testament event about an unnamed woman. And I can all but guarantee that none of us have heard about her in Bible class when we were kids for reasons that will soon become clear. She's called the wise woman of Abel. 
Okay, so we're going to view the characters and events in this story as an allegory. Now, what we mean by that is we're, we're looking at it, we're, we're going to make it into some picture language, and that's not what the Bible does. We're looking at the events and the history that is being relayed here and saying this is going to represent such and this is going to re- represent this so we can draw some spiritual lessons. So we're, we're, we're creating the allegory. It is not a scripturally based allegory, but it's based on scriptural truth. It is a time of political instability in King David's reign. His son Absalom rebelled and was killed in a battle for the throne. Another revolt is brewing, and Sheba leads a revolt against David. So, as we put our spiritual allegory together, we've got very important characters. King David is a very important character. It's interesting, he's mentioned at the beginning, essentially, and at the end, but you need to know what he represents. In our allegory, King David represents our spiritual lives as we seek to grow out of our sinful ways and into our spiritually into spiritually mature Christians. We want to be men and women after God's own heart, the way David was. That is, he represents us in our spiritual growth. Sheba, the bad guy, represents Satan's influences that are always seeking to undermine the spiritual growth. And you know and I know, in our lives, there's always that tug of war between satanic influences and good things. So let's start with the scriptures. We're going to go to 2 Samuel chapter 20, verse 1. Now a worthless man happened to be there whose name was Sheba, the son of Beshir, a Benjamite. And he blew the trumpet and said, We have no share in David, nor do we have an inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tents, Israel. Well, it's interesting Sheba was from the same tribe as King Saul. Now, we have no share in David means Sheba claims David is not the rightful ruler. And he calls him the son of Jesse. So David's father was just a farmer. There's no royal heritage. So this was a derogatory term. And when he said, every man to his tents, in other words, it means go your own way. Don't listen to King David. So there is a there is treachery happening here. He is undermining the rule of King David. Remember, King David is appointed by God. This is important. Sheba is trying to take that apart. In our lives, as we look at it from a spiritual perspective, Satan attacks our credibility in front of others, just the way Sheba attacked uh, David's credibility. Humble beginnings do not minimize our calling. David had a very humble beginning. He was just a shepherd. Our, we can also have humble beginnings. 1 Corinthians one twenty six. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, nor many mighty, nor many noble. So the allegory is bringing this physical, historic event to life for us spiritually. In this next scripture, we're going to be talking about Abishai and Joab. Now, Abishai, just so we understand before we read the scripture, he was commander over one-third of David's army and his personal guard. So Abishai had a very significant role. But Joab is his brother, and Joab is the commander-in-chief of David's army. So Joab is the go-to guy for David when it comes to military things. So you've got Abishai and Joab mentioned in this next scripture. That's who, we, who they were. So Jonathan, 2 Samuel 20, verses 2 and then verse 6. So all the men of Israel withdrew from following David and followed Sheba, the son of Beersheer. But the men of Judah remained loyal to their king, for the Jordan even to Jerusalem. And David said to Abishai, Now Sheba, the son of Beersheer, will do us more harm than Absalom. 
Take your Lord's servants and pursue him, so that he does not find for himself fortified cities and escape from our sight. So what happened is David sends Abishai to neutralize this threat. David had to protect his anointed position. So when Abishai goes, Joab goes with him. David has to protect his kingship because it was appointed by God. We, when we look at this spiritually, we also must recognize and firmly subdue the influences that would keep us from what we're called by God through Christ to do. David was called to rule. We are called to follow. We have to protect that as David protected the throne. Now, Abishai, in the allegory, really doesn't play a part. This is the last time you hear of him because it's all about Joab. So Joab, in our spiritual allegory, is going to represent our sinful earthly mind, our sinful inclinations, and our sinful actions. He's going to represent all of the things that we do as human beings. This is important. So we've got Sheba representing Satan's influence, David representing our spiritual lives, and Joab so far representing our human reactions, responses, and desires. Jonathan, let's go back to 2 Samuel chapter 20. Let's go down to verses 10 and 14. Then Joab and his brother Abishai pursued Sheba, the son of Beersheer. Now he went on through all the tribes of Israel to Abel, that is Bethmecca, and all the Barites, and they assembled and went after him as well. So you got a lot of people being assembled. They are chasing down this treasonous individual because he needs to be removed. He's undermining God's chosen one. So Joab is is doing the right. He's, he's after him. He is after him because he is after the king. What ends up happening is they went to this city of Abel. Now, city of Abel in our spiritual allegory is going to represent the environment of our lives that God has protected. It grants us peace and safety, even in turmoil, so we can go grow in Christ. Now, for this spiritual allegory, the city doesn't have to necessarily be a place. It can be that state of mind. It can be that fellowship with others. It can be the, the relationships we have. It's that, that environment in which we grow spiritually. That's what we're going to look at the, spirit, the city of Abel representing for us. It's exciting because excavation started at Abel Beth Maka in 2013. So we can definitely prove that this city existed. It's in the far north of Israel on the border between Syria, Lebanon, and Israel. It's about 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. All right. So you have an actual physical city presently being excavated as we speak. It's pretty amazing when you think about that. Joab, let's get back to our story now. Joab was thorough and passionate about subduing this enemy of King David because that's, what, that's why he is the commander-in-chief. He's the guy who's going to get it done. However, this passion would lead to a very harsh and incredibly unwise decision. We're coming to that in 2 Samuel chapter 20, verse 15. And they came and besieged him and Abel Beth Mecca, and they built up an assault ramp against the city. And it stood against the outer rampart, and all the people who were with Joab were wreaking destruction in order to topple the wall. We've picked some excerpts from Wikipedia that we're going to use throughout this episode about siege warfare so we can learn about it. It is a form of constant, low-intensity conflict characterized by one party holding a strong, static, defensive position. So consequently, an opportunity for negotiation between combatants is not uncommon because proximity and fluctuating advantage can encourage diplomacy. And 
Oh, go ahead, Rick. So, so what's happening here is they are laying siege to the city, and it says that Joab and his men are wreaking destruction to topple the wall. They are after Sheba, and they are not stopping at anything. And a siege like this, Rick and Julie, would mean the main water and food supplies would be cut off. This is a fight to the death. Every man would be killed, and every woman and child would either be killed or enslaved. Or worse. It's a very brutal event of terror once those city walls finally get breached. So Um, so now we want to talk about more of the practical aspects of how a siege worked. So we've got some warfare steps for you. And the first warfare step is surround the target. You block supplies and the reinforcement or escape of the troops. You isolate the city. So siege warfare is about isolation. And that isolation produces all kinds of things, and we're going to develop that as we go through the podcast. But every time we talk about a warfare step, we have to therefore talk about the spiritual defense step. So spiritual siege defense strategy needs to be implemented. Julie said, here's the first step. You surround the city. So Jonathan, how do we begin to defend against that spiritually? What's step one for us? Defend against being a surrounded target. Recognize the symptoms of spiritual isolation. Measure your fellowship, study, and prayer life against the things you perceive you need to get done. Replace spiritual isolation with spiritual integration. Stockpile spiritual nourishment. That's a good phrase, but what's a practical way that we stockpile spiritual nourishment? Well, um, good question. And it's important because... uh, we need to study, fellowship, and co-labor uh, while we can. For when things get difficult and we're overwhelmed, then we ha- have something we can really rely upon. And, you know, I have a great example from when I was a kid. This made a huge impression on me. My grandfather was a very devoted Christian, on my, my father's father. And uh, when I was young, I must have been 10, 11, or 12, he thought he was going blind. He had cataracts, and he thought he was going blind, and he was very worried that he would not be able to read his Bible. So he took to memorizing 20 or 30 psalms, I mean full psalms, and I remember seeing his list in his little handwriting, all of these different psalms he memorized because he thought, if I can't ever see, I need to know them. And it made a huge impression because you could say, Grandpa, what's Psalm 91? And he would just go and, 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 and tell you Psalm 91. So that's a way to stockpile spiritual nourishment. You, he, now, he didn't end up going blind. He had the cataract surgery. He could kind of see, but it helped him for the rest of his life. So it was a huge lesson about putting, when we can, like you said, Jonathan, put things in order. Let's go to 1 Peter 5, verses 8 and 9. Be of a sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. So resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brothers and sisters who are in the world. And that scripture alludes back to what you said, Jonathan, about fellowship and co-laboring and working together and understanding that we need to be alert because our adversary is trying to destroy us. You know, it makes me think of the spiritual isolation that many of us had during COVID, Yeah, where we weren't able to meet. So it's a good thing we already had connections and relationships, and we were reaching out to each other to get through that time period. Yeah, yeah. And and the beautiful thing about a podcast is throughout COVID, we still got to do, by God's grace, what we always did, because it just works, and it's a way to be able to encourage and be encouraged. We have to have spiritual siege defense strategies in order. Satan will stop at nothing to derail the lives of God's children. 
he will use our minds against us. We have just scratched the surface of the dangers of a siege. What else is there to defend against? Ancient sieges were scary and brutal. Being under siege was a win or lose proposition. Even if you were able to outlast or outsmart your enemy, the chance that your city suffered large casualties was very high. Satan wants to conquer God's children, and he is willing to play the long game to do it. And that's what a siege is. A siege is playing the long game. It's like, we will outlast you. We will wear you down. And when you think about playing the long game, think of a spider. A spider sets its web, and then it sits over in a corner, and it just waits. And it waits, and it waits until, because it knows something's going to fly through, and then it's got it. Satan is like that. He will play the long game to try to come after us. We have to defend against that. And that's what this spiritual allegory is about. So we're going to be looking at a couple of steps of siege warfare and spiritual defense strategies before we get back to uh, our account in 2 Samuel. So Julie, what's the next siege warfare step? All right. So after we surrounded the target, you reduce fortifications so as to break through them. So you reduce them by means of siege engines. That's a device that is designed to break or circumvent heavy castle doors, thick city walls, or other fortifications. An example would be a battering ram, or maybe you've seen pictures of wheeled siege ladders where they lean them up against these big walls to climb aboard. There is a bombardment of weapons. And sometimes I thought this was really interesting. There's construction of underground facilities, and they called it mining or undermining in order to attack including using natural caves. So tunnels could be used to undermine fortifications, slip into enemy territory for a surprise attack. And digging tunnels beneath the foundations of the walls would cause them to collapse. But defenders could dig counter tunnels. They would cut into the attacker's works and collapse them prematurely on top of the invading army. So it's really a game of strategy and a long game, as Rick said. And, and not only is it a, a long game and full of strategy, but you have to be willing to just exert yourself if you're trying to defend yourself because you have no idea what they're doing. So this is a hard thing. When a city was laid siege to in, the, in ancient times, it was a fearful fearful time because there's so many ways that you can be overcome and you have to be willing to do the work. So Jonathan, Julie mentioned reducing fortifications to break through them. There's no time in this podcast where she's going to be able to mention some siege warfare step where we are not going to come back and say, okay, you can say that, but our spiritual siege defense strategy is going to be up and running. So what's step two for us? Defend against reduced fortifications that can be broken through. Be aware that a constant barrage of low-intensity temptations and negative thoughts can break down our defenses. See, low-intensity. Sometimes when it's low-intensity, you just don't pay so much attention. You're looking for the big thing when the little things can just wear you down. Spiritual complacency and spiritual doubt can result in self-reliance. Complacency can result in self-reliance, and so can spiritual doubt. Because when we're spiritually doubting, we tend to rely on ourselves instead. Not good. Lust and pride often burrow deeply within us, gradually weakening our defenses. 
Know Satan's siege strategy and resolve to use the appropriate weapons and tools for your defense. You've got to know the kinds of things he does so we can defend against it. Don't let the reduce them reduce the fortifications and be able to break through. Good scripture on this is 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 4 to 6. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying arguments and all arrogance raised against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, and we are ready to punish all disobedience whenever your obedience is complete. Uh, David, a Christian friend of mine, gave us this quote during Bible study this past Sunday, and quote, you are not your thoughts, you are the observer of your thoughts, and that quote was from Amit Ray. And David said, our thoughts are shaped by external forces, and the adversary can have a dramatic effect on them, making us believe something about ourselves that is very different from what we are as individuals and Christians. Being able to recognize that takes prayer, meditation, and the support of others. So you can have a thought, but it doesn't mean you're bound to the thought. It doesn't mean you are the thought. It just comes into your mind. What do I do? Those are those little things that can be that the low-intensity temptations that can just chip away, chip away, chip away at who and what we are. Keep firm in understanding the big picture. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they're divinely powered to the destruction of fortresses. We have to rely on God's Spirit, and we're going to see that come into play very, very soon. All right, Julie, let's go back to the next siege warfare step. All right, step three is remember that previous step was to reduce fortifications so as to break through them, but this would also induce fear. Not only would things like seeing and feeling the effects of these siege engines fill the city with dread, but early examples of biological warfare included catapulting diseased animals over city walls. This was a sudden and unexpected attack that would appear out of nowhere. And boy, that would be scary. A diseased animal just... Swamp. Just, yeah. Just, and, and, and now you're surrounded by this disease. And it's like, what do we do? So not only is it about tearing walls down, but it's about instilling fear as you are trying to conquer the city we will not be conquered spiritually. So, Jonathan, we need to set our spiritual siege defense strategies in place, reduce fortifications to induce fear. What do we do? What's our third step? Defend against reduced fortifications to induce fear. So Satan wields dangerous weaponry, weaponry even now. Our once safe and godly place can be bombarded with ominous threats aimed at our spiritual well-being. And blatant temptations might be presented with seemingly no way to avoid them. So we move forward, we explore this new distracting thing that's shown to us, and emotions are another example. And I think of anger. Anger is an emotion that can seemingly appear out of nowhere and capture us suddenly. And for me, I step back and think, wow, now where did that disease animal come from? Yeah. When I get, you know, suddenly the anger shows, ugh, that's not good. And so, so Jonathan, how do we do this? What's our strategy here? Well, our strategy must be to focus on and embrace the highest, most important thing, God is love and his providence for us. So fear be gone. And speaking of that, 1 John 4, 18 to 19 says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment. And the one who fears is not perfected in love. 
We love because he first loved us. All right, let's get back to our story. So Joab is besieging Abel Beth Makkah, where Sheba's hiding. And we pick up the story in 2 Samuel 20, 16. Then a wise woman called out from the city. Listen, listen, please tell Joab, come here that I may speak with you. So here we have this wise woman. We don't know her name. This is how she's described, a wise woman. That's it. That's what we know about her. She comes out of the city, and she beckons Joab to come and talk to her. So in our allegory, in our spiritual allegory that we're placing over top of this, of this biblical account, the wise woman will represent God's spirit and counsel, which is ever-present in our lives if we're true followers of Jesus. It's always there. The question is, do I listen to it when I need to listen to it? Remember, Joab represents our earthly thinking, our earthly ambitions, our, our broken desires even. Those two things are at odds. And we're going to see how the wise woman confronts the, 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 the physicality of our, or the, the sinfulness, rather, of our own, our own thoughts. So, Julia, let's get back to the wise woman, 2 Samuel twenty seventeen. So he approached her, that's Joab, and the woman said, Are you Joab? And he answered, I am. And then she said to him, Listen to the words of your maidservant. And he said, I'm listening. So immediately this wise woman comes out without fear, and she confronts the most powerful man besides the king himself. She's wise because she wasn't afraid of Joab, Sheba, or this giant army that has just surrounded her city. She reverenced God. And through wisdom, we're going to see that she is able to bring to her city peace and get justice. Now, remember, the walls are in the process of being bombarded and torn down. So she comes out in this, in this bombardment and just asks for the leader. God's spirit at work. James three seventeen. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. The, the wise woman continues in verse 18. They used to say in the old days, let them inquire at Abel, and so they would settle a matter. So here she reminds Joab of the history of her city. The Bible doesn't say this woman is a seer or an oracle, but that the city of Abel had been a center for wisdom. People would come here to have their questions answered. So this wise woman is just introducing, or I should say reintroducing, Joab to the facts of what he's in the process of destroying, calmly dealing with him face to face. This is very, 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 very significant in, in terms of understanding the allegory, which we're going to get to in a moment. So, Julie, let's get back to the wise woman, 2 Samuel twenty nineteen. I am of those who are peaceable and faithful in Israel. You're seeking to destroy a city, even a mother in Israel. Why would you swallow up the inheritance of the Lord? And here I have the uh, I appreciate that she has the courage to speak truth to others. This phrase, a city, even a mother in Israel, is interesting. This was a preeminent city, and it had allegiance to the Lord's choice of King David. Now, a mother city was a larger city that supported smaller towns and villages like the daughter cities. And there were several settlements dependent upon the survival of Abel. So if it goes down, many are going to suffer. The wise woman doesn't say, Joab, stop what you're doing. What do you, you understand? She, she doesn't, she just says, look, this is who we are. 
This is what you are bombarding. This is what you are destroying. And Let me remind you. Right, right. <laughs> We're the loyal ones. So why would you swallow up the inheritance of the Lord? You've got this, this strength that comes out of her. That's why we see her as, as, as a picture of God's spirit. So Jonathan, what we're going to see throughout this, 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 this interchange and this account is spiritual wisdom applied. What's the spiritual wisdom we're seeing here? The preservation and development of things sacred are always our most important perspective. So the preservation and development of things that are sacred. That's what we're here for. That's what God's Spirit helps us to do. So in this entire interchange, you know, if we look at this as our spiritual allegory application, we see Joab going about the business of destruction, our own human minds about, I've got to get the bad guy, I'm going to stop at nothing, I'm going to stop at nothing, I'm going to break anything in my way so I can get the bad guy. And she comes out and says, this is what you're destroying, essentially. This is who we are. Notice she doesn't talk about, she didn't even know about Sheba at this point. She just talks about, this is a city that honors God. We are people who honor God. Is it a good thing to be destroying us here? That's what we have so far. Let's get back to siege warfare. Julie, step four. The use of deception or treachery to infiltrate the city. And this might include coercing someone inside to betray the fortification, like bribing a gatekeeper. All right, so not only is there bombardment and the trying to tear down the walls and throwing diseased animals over the walls and all of these other kinds of things, but now there's the deception and treachery to infiltrate. We need to spiritually be on guard against that in our lives to protect our spiritual lives. So Jonathan, our spiritual siege defense strategy step four is what to counteract that? Defend against deception or treachery as a way to infiltrate our spiritual lives. So now what we're saying is be deliberate about your choice of who you let into the walls of your city. Those not looking out for your highest spiritual welfare may intentionally or inadvertently allow Satan's attacks to creep in. So Jonathan, what do we do? What's our strategy? Well, our strategy here is to meet our own aggression or the aggression of others with sound spiritual reasoning. That is driven by the wisdom of God's power and influence. And Proverbs 25, 11, and 12 reads, Like apples of gold in settings of silver is a word spoken in right circumstances. Like an earring of gold and an ornament of fine gold is a wise reprover to a listening ear. So the strategy here is to meet our own aggression. Because remember, Joab represents me. It represents my fleshly response to trying to do the right thing the wrong way. Sometimes I have to be able to stop my own aggression. I can't do that because I'm me and I'm, I'm the aggressor. But what happens? It's the wise woman's words and voice and presence, the presence of God's spirit that can, that can settle that down. And I like what you said about be deliberate about who you let into the walls of your city. You know, you're only as good as the company you keep. Yeah. And friends can really influence you going down the wrong path. And so it's important to protect your city. Absolutely. The siege of Satan's influences upon our personal lives can be only combated by God's influence. The question is, am I listening? The cold heart aggression of Joab is met squarely with the wise woman's wisdom. What is the result? We must always, always be on guard to tame and overcome the power of our own ego when faced with rooting out satanic influences. As Christians, the best, the only remedy for this is to be humble enough, to be humble enough to let God's Spirit become our primary influence so it can direct our words and our actions. This, 
you know, we talk about humility all the time. But when we're in, in this particular instance, when we're looking through this particular scriptural account and seeing the, the destruction that Joab is wreaking, we need to understand that's me wreaking destruction on what is, is sacred to me. We can do that. We have to have the humility to be able to let God's Spirit overwhelm us and show us a different way. Julie, let's get back to the, 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 the account. Well, the wise woman, I just wanted to talk about her for a second. She didn't try to flatter Joab. She's not rude. She's not indignant. She's not defensive or frantic. She's direct and she's wise in the face of trouble. And I admire that she's got this calm determination because I probably would have freaked out. Ah, so many soldiers. But she calmly says, Joab, what are we doing here? So, so Joab would pause, listen, and now respond. The story picks up in 2 Samuel 20, 20 to 21. Joab replied, far be it, far be it from me that I would consume or destroy. Such is not the case. But a man from the hill country of Ephraim, Sheba, the son of Beshir by name, has raised his hand against King David. Only turn him over and I will depart from the city. Now Joab was taken aback by her rebuke. Joab's only goal was to capture Sheba and therefore destroy the rebellion. Because he paused to listen, he could pause and explain his orders from the king. See, when you're in the middle of knocking down the walls and just trying to get all of these men to do all of this heavy work so you can get that bad guy, you're not thinking. The wise woman comes out and causes him to pause, and now he reflects and he realizes, wait, wait, I'm not here to destroy. Oh, yeah, I'm here to get the bad guy. And so it's a, it's a paradigm shift. And in our lives, we need to consider the Holy Spirit, God's Spirit and influence, helping us make that shift when we start trying to do the right thing the wrong way. But l- let's take a moment here and consider. Julie, you said you wanted to talk about the woman, the wise woman for a moment. Well, I want to talk about how conflicted Joab was for a moment. Let's think about this. On one hand, he's a trusted general of King David. I mean, he is King David's go-to guy. On the other hand, his history shows him to be bloodthirsty and a man of war. With the city of Abel, he recklessly implemented a destructive solution for a legitimately and serious problem. He could have approached the walled city in the name of King David, explained to the people that Sheba was taking refuge there, and searched the city till he found him. Joab, in Scripture, often went about the right thing in the wrong way. This is important, and that's why we look at Joab in our allegory as representing us in, in our sinful mind, because we can take the right thing and just do it the way we kind of feel like we're wired to do it. And it that's just generally doesn't work out so well. And it really shows us his thinking that he goes from the order to find Sheba to let's wipe out an entire loyal city and yeah. cripple the surrounding area. Yeah. Ugh, men. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah. <clears throat> so uh, misdirected wise... passion. Not okay. men, misdirected passion. Okay. A woman probably wouldn't have done that, but well, all right. But... <laughs> um, so the wise woman immediately seizes on Joab's response that, you know, he's looking for Sheba, and she calmly and courageously knows what she has to do. And we pick up the story in 2 Samuel 20, 21 to 23. And the woman said to Joab, behold, his head will be thrown to you over the wall. And by the way, that's why you never see a Bible class project on this lesson. <laughs> Then the woman wisely came out to all the people. So, so she 
understands why Joab is destroying the, the walls of the city, and she basically says, look, we'll toss his head out to you. And I mean, you're going to go, what? Remember, this is treason, what's happening. This is a deadly serious crime that's happening, and there's an army after this guy because he is inciting people, the, the people of Israel, to stand up against David. So she goes to the people. She doesn't decide herself. She says this will be the result, and then she goes to the people. And they cut off the head of Sheba, the son of Beshir, and threw it to Joab. So he blew the trumpet. They were dispersed from the city, each to his own tent. And Joab also returned to the king at Jerusalem. So the wise woman of Abel acted quickly and decisively, and she clearly had the respect of the people. She spread the word about this treasonous Sheba, and the people responded to her plan. The siege would be stopped without any innocent lives put in danger. So what we have then is this sense of calm, the sense of clarity, the sense of tragedy averted. Why was tragedy averted? Because she caused him to stop, to listen, and she gave him the solution that he needed. Root out the deep, dark evil and nothing else. Remove it. Just remove what you need to remove without breaking everything else. So, Jonathan, we have spiritual wisdom here. What is spiritual wisdom applied in this case? The eradicating of satanic influence from within the God-protected environment of our lives requires strong, focused, and decisive action. So, as we look at this in our, our spiritual allegory application, we see the conversation between Sheba, uh, not Sheba, I'm sorry, between Joab and the wise woman. And she simply asks questions, reminds him who and what they are in the city. And then Joab says, here's what we're after. Because he's like, well, no, 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 I didn't come here to destroy. I came here to get, to, to, to capture a very evil man. And, and, and the answer is, well, then let's capture him. But stop taking the walls down in the process. She didn't say that. But Joab was able to wake up from his rage and see reason. And that's what the, the, the Spirit does for us if we let it. You know, folks, understand, the Spirit doesn't overrun us without our permission. We have to give it permission to show us, to direct us through God's Word, through study, through fellowship, and all of those things, so we can, we can grow and do the right things the right way. Let's get back to siege warfare. Julie, I think we're on step five. Yes, and we said it earlier, because siege warfare is this long-term, low-intensity conflict, the opportunity for negotiation between combatants isn't uncommon. All right, so you have an opportunity to negotiate, and you say, okay, that's a good thing. It can be. Spiritual siege defense strategy, step five, Jonathan, in relation to this negotiation. Defend against compromises that would in any way weaken the integrity of our spiritual lives. Some compromises are very good and very appropriate, but a lot of compromises are not. Compromise can be tricky. Appropriate compromises, compromise never lessens our spiritual focus. The wise woman engineered a compromise for everyone's highest welfare. Joab and his soldiers would stand down from unnecessary destruction while she handed the precise, she handled the precise problem at hand. That was an appropriate compromise because it was for the good, the highest good of everyone. And we need to be careful, though, because a lot of compromises we tend to make are not that kind. 
Yeah, in episode 1158, Has My Christianity Been Compromised? We talked about several important, uh, what we called compromise catastrophe zones. And those represented compromises that we should avoid at all costs. Okay, so we have, there are four zones we're just going to briefly touch on from podcast 1158. And again, compromise catastrophe zones. Jonathan, what is the first compromise catastrophe zone? The incognito Christian. Stay in the world, but be unrecognized for the rest. We do not apply our Christianity with any seriousness. So that compromise is, I'm just going to be hidden within. And, and that's a compromise that's utterly dangerous, because you are not living any of your Christianity when you're surrounded in the world. Julie, what's the second one? Uh, the convenient Christian. So you can be different, but you don't want to be too different. Don't go too far away from anyone else. We apply our Christianity impulsively. So when it's convenient, when it's comfortable, then you can say, yes, I might be a Christian. But we need to stand a lot higher than this. Again, that's another compromise that is not good for us. Jonathan, what's the third one? The neglectful Christian. Compromise your household by neglecting your responsibilities and privileges as a spouse, parent, and caregiver of needy ones. We apply our Christianity in a self-centered way. So being neglectful is another compromise. We can say, well, I'm doing God's work, but if we're neglecting the things that we've been given responsibility for, then doing God's work is trying to do the right thing in the wrong way. And we have to be careful. There are many compromises that are very powerful and very good, and the wise woman engineered one with Joab. But we can easily engineer the wrong kinds of compromises, and you know what that does? That allows the walls of our city to continue to be taken down, and, and we are still harboring satanic influence within the, inside that city. And Julie, our fourth compromise zone. That's uh, the insecure Christian. Here's where we say, well, I give it all to you, Lord. Except my stuff. I like my stuff. I can serve your will if I can keep my stuff secure. So here we apply our Christianity in a self-preserving way. That's so, not a good compromise. So again, compromise is appropriate when it's done with the appropriate objectives and the appropriate results, but it is not good otherwise. And so when we see the wise woman creating a compromise with Joab, don't take the message as saying, hey, just make a compromise and be done with it. Make a compromise that does not compromise our spirituality, does not compromise the integrity of what God has given us. Really important. Compromise in the right way. Siege Warfare, step six. Julie, you keep coming on with these things. <laughs> All right. So the next thing you would do in a siege is build a line of earthworks consisting of a rampart and a trench. And I tried hard not to put any math into this episode, but <laughs> I found a great article from the Biblical Archaeology Society online. It's basslibrary.org. And they gave this statistic. An old Babylonian mathematical problem indicates that 9,500 men working 12 hours a day could build a ramp to the top of a 70-foot high wall in only five days. That's just plain scary. Can you imagine being on the inside of a city and you see 10,000 men being organized to build this incredible ramp? In Getting closer and closer and closer. And they're working day and night and day and night and day and night. I mean, you, you feel this sense of doom. So we, Satan lays siege to us. 
He will build the ramps to get over the wall. He will use all of those outside influences if we allow it to. What are we going to do? How do we defend against something like that? Jonathan, we need spiritual siege defense strategies here. What's our defense strategy step six? Defend against earthly rationalization of sins layered on top of previously rationalized sins. Such layering sets us up for a corrupted view of godliness. So in the physical world, it's the building up of that, that ramp that's going to be higher than the wall so the enemy can get in. In our lives, it's the rationalizations of sins that layer one on top of another and build it higher and higher and higher and make it so we are breachable. We, don't, we want to be unreachable by Satan, not breachable. We don't want to let our own earthly mind rationalize the integrity of the godly wall that protects our spiritual life. And that's what's happening in this picture. We have to be so, so careful. And it's so easy. And Jesus, Jesus even talked about this. Matthew 7, 21 to 23. And he's, he's, he's looking at a, 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 a parabolic view of, of the results of false Christianity. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So, Lord, didn't we do things in your name? And Jesus answers, I didn't know you. Why didn't he know them? Because they were doing the right things, supposedly in the wrong way. They were doing it through, through earthly thinking for earthly gain. And we, we're surrounded by that. Let's not be the ones doing that where Jesus says, I never knew you, because we are so earthly in our thinking and in our actions. Fighting against Satan is an everyday, multiple front battle. Many of these battles, battlefronts are in my own mind. How can we learn to regularly respond with the wisdom of this wise woman in our everyday life? And that is an important question. This wise woman was proactive. Joab, without good reason, laid siege to her city, so she immediately sought him out to understand his actions. Once Joab revealed that the treacherous Sheba was hiding in her city, she simply and decisively handled the problem and restored the city's godly environment. Simply and decisively. And that's the way God's Spirit will work in our lives if we are willing to let it guide us. And that's the key. How do you let the Spirit guide you? By study, by prayer, by fellowship, by following examples of those who have gone before. There's so many ways to learn. But are you listening? See, Joab brought chaos. He was appropriately about the business of removing treachery. I mean, appropriately, get Sheba. Okay, I know my mission. I'm after it. But he handled that responsibility in a godless way. He's, he, he's, he's relentlessly destroying the walls of a city of innocent people. How do we handle the chaos of Satan's attacks and influences in our lives? The wise woman represents our voice and action as a result of God's power and influence in our lives. And again, am I listening for that or am I listening to myself? Because the earthly thinking of Rick 
is destructive. But the godly thinking that by God's grace through his spirit can work in me is not only constructive, but it saves lives and it produces spiritual maturity. Julie, we have a quote here from Samuel Smiles. We learn wisdom from failure much more than from success. We often discover what will do by finding out what will not do. And probably he who never made a mistake never made a discovery. <laughs> so this is not saying don't make mistakes. What this is saying is listen for God's guidance as you move forward. And when you do make a mistake, listen to the guidance of God's spirit and say, oh, no, no, I'm not here to destroy. I'm just here to root out that which is evil. That's what we're supposed to draw from this. That's why we're drawing the spiritual allegory from this factual account. From podcast 588, has wisdom been forgotten? There are several points that we would just want to put on the table, put to a scripture, and apply to this account because they're so powerful. And the first point, it's a point that we talk about every week. Be full of humility, 1 Peter 5, 5 and 6. You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders. In all of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he might exalt you at the proper time. And here's our spiritual wisdom applied. The wise woman presented herself as Joab's handmaiden. Do we realize that God's power in our lives can be subdued by our own recklessness? Respect God's influence. We have to respect his influence. She presented herself before Joab as a handmaiden. She presented herself humbly. Why? So he would listen. She humbly then put things in perspective, and he then could take a breath and find the humility that he was serving the king with. He'd lost it. So be full of humility. Let God's Spirit guide that humility. Next point from 588, has wisdom been forgotten? Seek for wisdom and knowledge, Proverbs 16, 16. How much better is it to get wisdom than gold? And to get understanding is to be chosen above silver. Our spiritual wisdom applied here is that the wise woman told Joab that she was a peaceable and faithful one in Israel. Are we responding to Satan's influences with godly wisdom or in our own way? Respect God's wisdom. She presented herself to Joab. In other words, the spirituality in our lives has to present itself to our, our earthly thinking. Look, I'm about the will of God. That's what your life is dedicated to. Remember? Because Joab's life was dedicated to serving King David. He was at the beck and call of whatever David said, and he had taken what David said, and he had taken it out of context, and he made it dangerous, and he made it destructive. But the wisdom of God, the Spirit of God, can come to us and say, stop that, change direction, and go about the right thing in the right way. Third point, be God-centered. 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. And our spiritual wisdom applied? The wise woman reminded Joab of a godly heritage her city was known for. 
when in the throes of our emotional fight against Satan, can we hear that still small voice that represents God's perspective? Respect God's appointments. She reminded Joab of who and what they were and who and what they were. She, he was destroying. And folks, again, remember, we can destroy our own spiritual lives. We can destroy our own spiritual environment by applying earthly wisdom, earthly passion, earthly power, earthly drive, earthly desire to it. We can't do that. We're in the service of something higher. We need to listen to the, to, to, to the influence of that something higher to be able to find out what we should and should not be doing. And, it's, and when we're making a mistake, it is the best thing to be able to, to pause, consider, and refocus and change direction. That's what Joab learned in this particular case because this woman, representing God's spirit in our allegory, put things in perspective, respect God's appointments. Next point is to recall God's mercy. Psalm 111, verse 10. Uh, The fear, and that word fear here means reverence, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all those who do his commandments. His praise endures forever. And our spiritual wisdom applied to this is, the wise woman focused that out-of-control Joab on the recklessness of his actions while serving King David. Are we able to stop reconsider, and refocus based on a willingness to absorb where God is pointing us. So I don't know if you've ever had it happen where you're, you're going left and then by the overruling of God's in, in your life and his providence, it, you're said, you know, you know what, you should be going right. You know what the bottom line is? Respect God's direction. And that has happened to me many times, unfortunately more times than I'd love to admit, but you know what? That's just the way it is. Sometimes you're going about things and you're, and, you, and you're on a roll and you figure like you got momentum and you've got energy, but it's not appropriate spiritually. We have to listen and respect God's direction. And even though it's not feeding what we've done, it still is appropriate to stop and change. Now, Joab had destroyed parts of the walls of the city. He'd done damage, and yet he was called upon to stop and change direction. How do you do that? You recall God's mercy. And God has incredible mercy for on us when we get ourselves into situations that we create a hole in our, in, in, in our life experience. And I know we, we've all done that. You, you dig a hole, it's like, oh man, how did I get here? Oh wait, I got myself here. I'm the one with the shovel. Well, what do I do now? You look for God's direction to change direction. Our last point from the wisdom being forgotten, reiterate that it is God who rules. This is important, and this sounds so simple, but it's so important. It is God who rules, Jeremiah 9, 24. But let him who boasts, boasts of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For I dwell in these things, declares the Lord. And our spiritual wisdom applied? The wise woman saw that justice according to God's law was fulfilled. Are we too emotionally stuck to listen to the clear and appropriate direction that God's influence presents to us? Respect God's providence. And it's, it's interesting in, in this, covering this account and the, the account of Joab and the wise woman and all the things that happened in my own life and, and in, in my own experiences. I've had several experiences very recently 
where I I can see where where God's spirit has has pointed me. Sometimes it's subtle, and there's times that I overlook it or or ignore it. Let me let me put it that way. Ignore it, and then I realize that there was a, a lost opportunity, and I have to ask for forgiveness because I realized, Lord, you put that in front of me, and I know you put it there, and I didn't do anything about it. I am sorry. Please forgive me. And it's his providence will give us a way, but we have to take action to recognize it and follow it. We have to respect God's providence. This, these are the lessons of this wise woman and saving this city of Abel, saving all of those people from this needless destruction so that the evil, the treachery could be yanked out of there. The treachery was one individual, not the city, not the walls, not the people. It was one individual. We need to be able to focus in on what God wants us to remove without causing all this external excess damage. Jonathan, our final scripture, James 4, 7 through 10. Submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. Submit, therefore, to God. That's what the lesson is here. The wise woman, her role, representing God's spirit and influence in our lives, is speaking to us individually, saying, you are in the service of that new creature, that new creation represented by King David, and your job is to do, as a physical human being, the will of that new creature. What are you doing? What are you doing? If we don't submit to God, we don't submit to that to that that spiritual influence that guides us. And look, the Holy Spirit doesn't speak words to us, but the words of God are all over the Bible, if you haven't noticed. And we can learn those words, and we can apply those words, and we can take those words. And, and just like Jonathan, you know, you quoted from uh, one of the brothers in, in, in terms of defining our, our thoughts. Mm-hmm. The word of God's Spirit can come through that kind of thing. This is how we do it. Folks, this lesson is so important. The, the actual physical event is a true story. It's a true story where a city could have been destroyed had it not been for a wise individual. For us, the lesson is really simple. Our lives, our spiritual lives, can be destroyed by ourselves because maybe we've allowed Satan in and we didn't even know it. And now his influence is lurking on the inside. So then we find out, and then we get panicky. And then we start to break things instead of remove that which needs to be removed. God's Spirit helps us do the right thing and do it the right way. So God is the one who is inevitably and always glorified. That is the lesson of the wise woman and Joab. Think about it. Folks, listen, we really do want to hear from you. Give us your feedback or send us your questions on this episode and other episodes at ChristianQuestions.com. Also, a big part of spreading the word about our podcast is subscribing to Christian Questions in your favorite podcast channel, such as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts. Please rate us and review us. We'd greatly appreciate it. Coming up next week, next week, so did I really forgive them? It's about forgiveness and sincerity and understanding. We'll talk to you then.